This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Obesity is becoming a serious epidemic in the United States, and it's estimated if the current trends continue, by 2030, nearly half of all adults in the U.S. will be obese. Prevalence rates of being overweight and obese are steadily increasing in men and women, and some of the highest rates of obesity are seen in women. Obesity carries an increased risk of a variety of medical conditions and death rates of several types of cancer. So the topic for today's podcast is obesity in women, and our guest is women's health expert, Dr. Ekta Kapoor from the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Ekta, thank you for joining us and and welcome. This is an interesting topic. Thank you so much, Dr. Chatka. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Well, I'm going to start by asking you to define the term obesity because it has a specific definition. The way things stand right now, whether or not most of the experts agree on the validity of this definition, obesity is defined based on BMI or the so-called body mass index criteria, which as I'm thinking this audience very well knows, the calculation for that is weight in kilograms divided by height in meter square. A body mass index between the range of 18.5 to 24.9 is considered normal. 25 to 29.9 falls in the overweight category and 30 and higher is classified as obesity. As I was doing my research on this topic, I came across several statements that criticized the use of BMI in women. They felt it was uh, biased in terms of age, maybe sex and race. Can you go into that a little bit? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing up that very, very important aspect. That's why I prefaced my previous response by saying that, you know, we may or may not agree uh, on whether this is a valid definition. Yes, the, the BMI is problematic and at least a couple of reasons why it is problematic. Now, as I stated, the definition of body mask index in the numerator when you're doing a calculation is the weight in kilogram, right? So the, the thinking, the knee-jerk response probably is that this is all fat mass, but as you and I know it's not all fat mass, right? Muscle and bones also contribute to that weight. So in a very muscular individual, for example, there is a theoretical possibility that that weight is receiving a significant contribution from the muscle mass. That is not the same as having fat mass, which is equivalent to that muscle mass, right? It doesn't have the same metabolic consequences. So that's aspect number one. The second issue, Dr. Chatka, which, as you know, is a bigger issue is that the BMI does not tell you the whole story because it is just telling you how much of a weight does an individual carry with respect to their height. Even if we assume that it's giving you a correct estimation in terms of the fat mass, this is not a very muscular individual, and we're just talking an estimate of the fat mass predominantly, it does not tell you where that fat sits in that individual. So as you know, body fat distribution is very important and perhaps even more important than the total fast math itself, because there are this very strong evidence now to suggest that individuals with the so-called 
normal BMI still are at a metabolic risk that's comparable to someone with an elevated BMI in the obesity range. What I'm trying to say here is that individuals with greater visceral type of body fat distribution, so so-called abdominal obesity, even if strictly speaking by the BMI criteria, they do not fall in the obese category, they may have the same metabolic risks with respect to the increased risk of hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, and even mortality as an individual who has obesity with increased visceral fat. These are really, really mind-boggling research findings that at the end of the day, I think what we really have to pay attention to our body fat distribution. Where is that excess fat sitting? Now, two classic examples that I see in my practice, which I'm thinking you're familiar with, after menopause, women tend to distribute the body fat preferentially in the abdominal area. So even if their overall weight is not going up and the BMI really is not in the red category, the obese category, or even overweight, these women are still at a higher metabolic risk for that reason. The other important thing that needs to be highlighted is, you know, this becomes relevant with respect to certain ethnicities. And again, I'm thinking this audience already knows this, that in the Asian population, for example, in the so-called normal BMI range, individuals can be at higher metabolic risk. So among experts, it's very well agreed that the BMI cutoff for defining obesity in the Asian population is different. So a BMI less than 23 is considered normal in the Asian populations as opposed to 25 in the Caucasian population. So again, the bigger issue really is where does that excess body fat sit that has a larger bearing on the consequences of obesity than the fat mass itself? Well, one of the big advantages of the BMI was that it gave us a very objective and easy to calculate definition of obesity. With, without that, it makes it much more challenging to determine if a patient is actually obese or not. Exactly. So it was a convenience thing. So one of the things that we try to do in our clinic is like, you know, measure the waist circumference. Granted, it's not a perfect measure of abdominal obesity, but it is something. So it gives us an estimation or an idea about, you know, what's happening in the abdominal area. Is the person accumulating more fat in that region? And then if we see that even in the presence of a normal BMI, then that is our red flag that we need to be more careful and counsel this patient more aggressively than someone who has a normal BMI and a normal weight circumference. At the end of the day, the gold standard really would be, you know, body composition studies using DEXA scans and using CT scans, but then in a busy clinic, waist right. circumference is a reasonable uh, alternative. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the reasons obesity has increased in women. Are there various social issues which influence and promote obesity? Yeah, that's such a good question. So, you know, there are certain unique influences that promote weight gain in women. So the two that come to mind that I see in my practice a lot are, the first one is pregnancy. So yes, there is this cultural notion or cultural practice to be taking good care of yourself nutritionally when you are pregnant. And again, this is advice that's passed along from generation to generation. So many women lose track of how much do they really need, or, or I shouldn't even say lose track. I should say they probably enter pregnancy with not adequate education in the matter that, you know, it's not too many extra calories that they need to support that pregnancy. So a lot of women, the extra weight that they gain with pregnancy, I hear it time and time again, that they're not able to shed it. 
and you know, greater the number of pregnancies, greater is the potential for this weight gain. So that's one influence. The other thing that's sort of unique to women is that they are the caregivers in the family. No one can argue with that. So taking care of families, having a job to do outside of home, they generally, their younger years can be pretty stressful, can be pretty busy. And then it, time just gets away from them and making good lifestyle choices can really be challenging. So when I am talking to 30, 40 year olds and I ask them, that why are they not able to eat healthy and why are they not able to make time to exercise? So it's not like they don't know what needs to be done. They can counsel me much better than I can ever tell them what it takes to lose that weight. It's just not having the time or the motivation because of life. So, you know, that's the most important thing. Now, come midlife years, which are between the ages of 40 to 60. So some other unique challenges come in the way of women, which keep them from adopting healthy lifestyle measures. What do I mean by that? Again, this is the time and they start making that important transition into menopause, right? So their hormone levels are declining. They're experiencing some very difficult symptoms, or they have the potential to experience some very difficult symptoms like hot flashes, night sweats, difficulty sleeping, mood problems, again, other different stressors, you know, of the so-called sandwich generation, having teenage children at home, aging parents, again, playing that caregiver role, taking care of everybody, it can be hard to adopt healthy lifestyle measures, and not just the inability to adopt, but there are some physiological derangements also, which cause appetite dysregulation. And one of the main ones there is sleep disturbance that has been shown time and time again, and that's not unique to women. Short sleepers tend to have a higher caloric intake that's been established. Depressed individuals, again, have challenges in adopting healthier lifestyle measures. And all these things are all acting together in midlife women and just sort of presenting a hindrance. The other thing that is applicable to both sexes and not really unique to women, you know, what is the age-related influence on weight? The other thing that's concurrently happening is the loss in muscle mass as we are getting older. So past the age of 30, with every decade, you are losing substantial amount of muscle mass involuntary, even in individuals who are physically active. This is again due to hormonal influences. And again, with menopause, lack of estrogen only accentuates that process. So when you lose muscle mass, what happens is that muscle is the site where we burn a lot of our calories at rest, the so-called basal metabolic rate. So even if nothing changed as we got older, if we ate the same way, or if we exercise the same way, because our basal energy needs are falling, we end up in an energy excess state. Because I can't tell you, Dr. Chatka, how many times my patients walk in the office, and that's one of the lines I hear very commonly, where these midlife women are really perplexed by the weight gain, and they're asking me that, you know, I haven't changed a thing. I'm eating the way I used to, I'm as active as I used to be, and I'm still gaining this weight. So the, the counter response to that really is, well, unfortunately, that's why. Because something's got to change as we're getting older, because our needs are falling. So our intake has to go down commensurate with that. If that doesn't happen, we end up in a state of positive energy balance. Now, even for individuals who say that they are as physically active as they used to be in their 20s and 30s, they're, they're not necessarily lying. They are telling the truth, but we do not burn as many calories doing the same kind of activities because there are subtle changes 
changes in the rate in which we do things, the pace at which we are doing things. So it's different as we're getting older. So we're burning fewer calories at rest. We're burning fewer calories with activity. And as a result, we end up in a positive energy state. Now, a question that's raised time and time again, that do we eat worse or do we eat more poorly as we get older? Now, I do know the data very well in women going through the menopause transition. In general, thankfully, people's diets do not change for the worse as they are getting older. So that piece really is not affected in the majority. But then again, like I shared, there are other influences that act together to some degree or the other, and women end up in the state of positive energy balance, and then they gain the weight. One thing I have noticed is that when patients of mine get older mm -hmm. and they lose their spouse, their diet seems to change at that point because they don't tend to make the same type of meals because mm -hmm. they're only cooking for themselves. So they often buy or take out food, uh, more easily prepared, high fat, higher calorie foods. And uh, that, would, uh, that would certainly cause problems in the older ages. Absolutely. So true. So this is what I call life happens and people fall off the bandwagon, even the very well educated people, people who know this inside out have led a healthy life many, many years. But when life strikes them like this, for one reason or the other, some of the life events, things do happen. You're exactly right. So these influences or these, these occurrences can really influence our lifestyle choices. Yeah. And it's, it's also very obvious that People have great difficulty in changing their eating habits to eat less and less as they get older. Mm -hmm. uh, that's very difficult. For it's very most. hard. Yeah. It's very hard. Very, very hard. Yeah, easier said than done. That's why, you know, when I sit down in the chair to counsel my patients, I always preface my counseling by telling them that, you know, this is just an oversimplification of the model, an oversimplification of what needs to be done. This is one of the hardest things out there. So if anybody is thinking that, you know, this is a very simple model, eat fewer calories, it'll all be good. I think we're living in a fool's paradise if we counsel our patients like that, because yeah, like you say, it's just so hard. I, I know we're talking about obesity in women, but you mentioned menopause and the change in fat distribution that occurs at menopause. And it almost sounds like it's similar to the fat distribution that occur in men. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. That's such an important point to talk about. So I'm thinking you've heard this analogy about calling men apples mm -hmm. in terms of their fat distribution pattern and calling premenopausal women as pears. So if you visualize these two fruits in your head, you're, you're going to see what I'm trying to say that, you know, men tend to have more of a central distribution of their body fat. So if a man is going to have excess body fat, it's more than likely going to go in the abdominal sites. Premenopausal women are protected against that because of estrogen, because estrogen has different effects on the lower body fat depots versus the abdominal fat depots. So it promotes the lipolysis in these visceral fat depots. So a premenopausal woman with normal ovarian function is going to keep that fat in check to a large extent. I mean, obviously, if somebody were to be very obese category, then the whole estrogen influence is overwhelming if you will. But then in general, if somebody, a premenopausal woman is in the overweight category, for example, or class one obesity, chances are that most of it will be in the lower body distribution pattern. But men are different. Now, what, what does this translate to? Like you were talking previously, the metabolic risks are mostly associated with the 
visceral body fat, so the central adiposity. That is why men who have obesity are at a higher risk for these metabolic complications, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, etc. Now, after menopause, we see the reverse effect. So women have more central adiposity, and that is why their risk for a lot of these problems, so hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, goes up dramatically right after menopause to the point that the menopause transition when you know they are entering menopause that's considered a window of vulnerability with respect to their risk for the metabolic syndrome and overall cardiometabolic risk it goes up significantly and these body fat distribution changes are a big contributor to that. So they lose that protective effect of estrogen and they even surpass men with respect to the prevalence of heart disease. And as you know, Dr. Chatka, a heart disease is the number one killer of postmenopausal women. Abdominal obesity and its consequences in postmenopausal women is a large public health issue. Uh, it's really the importance of it cannot be overestimated. Does abdominal obesity increase the risk of various malignancies in women as well? It can. In general, obesity is associated with a higher risk for two very important and common cancers, so breast cancer and endometrial cancer. Both of them have been uh, associated with obesity. Okay. So how do you manage this? What are the management strategies that have been shown to be most effective in treating obesity in women? Yeah, million dollar question, right, Dr. Chatka? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you counsel your patients about this one also. So first of all, validation, understanding each patient's unique situation. Because like I shared with you, having done this for several years, I believe that every patient who's sitting down with us to get counseling on obesity, they know what needs to be done. And they know what works for them because they've all, most of them anyhow, have tried to lose the weight. It's just a matter of having them do it and not only having them do it, having them do it day after day after day for years and years. So it's a marathon, right? That's the first point to drive home that it's a lifestyle choice. It's not something we do for a month or two months or three months. It's something we have to just keep doing. And, you know, even people on the street who are walking around with a normal weight are working hard to keep it that way. And it only gets harder as we get older. So I think just understanding that and then understanding each patient's unique situation. Like you mentioned a very specific example, loss of a spouse, you know? So that's why we cannot have like a cookie cutter approach that, okay, we just tell patients to cut back on their caloric intake and get physically active, and then they're gonna lose the weight. How is the most important thing? How is this given patient going to do it? So I think when we see it clinically, it's been shown in research studies that intensive counseling, intensive behavioral modification, which has to be tailored uniquely to a patient's need and their situation is very, very important. It has been shown with beyond any doubt that you know structured weight loss programs therefore are more successful because of the accountability piece. So again, telling a patient to go adhere to a restricted diet and exercise regularly, and we'll see you back in three months, that approach doesn't work, right? So it has to be a regular dialogue and back and forth, the accountability piece. Okay, last week didn't go well. Why did it not go well? And it's okay that hand-holding we're human beings, there will be lapses. What do we need to do? in the coming week to make things better. So those are the types of discussions I have with the patients. So again, 
First and foremost is behavioral changes because obesity is recognized more and more as a behavioral disease. We eat in the ways we do and we exercise or we are as active as we are because of behavioral patterns, which are really deep rooted and we all have unique reasons for those behaviors. That is why Dr. Chatka, as you know, engaging a psychology team has really become a preferred route of managing obesity. It's a truly a multidisciplinary approach. So whenever possible, engaging an MD, engaging a dietitian, engaging an exercise specialist, and engaging a psychologist has become sort of the, the cornerstone of management of obesity. Now, granted, not everybody has access to all these resources, but whenever possible, engaging a psychology team is really important because we really need to promote positive behaviors and make sure the patients stick to it. The question that always comes up is, okay, diet, what kind of diet works? What should we really be doing? So low fat, low carbohydrate, that's sort of been an age old debate, right? So what we do know now that any diet works as long as two criteria are met, that it is low in calories. So the patient ends up in caloric deficit and a dietary plan that they can live with for months and years to come. So crash diets don't work, right? They're gonna lose that weight in the first month or two months or so, but it's gonna come back. It's gonna come back with a vengeance because if you put them on a plan that they are not likely to stick with, we set them up for failure. So that's why, again, I go back to my whole point about that the cookie cutter approach does not work. You know, talking to a patient, coming down to their level, understanding their dietary preferences, and then giving them a plan that they are likely to stick with. So that's why in a busy primary care practice, that's so hard for an MD to do, right? In those 30, 45 minutes that they get with the patient and they're trying to manage multiple other issues, that is why engaging a specific team that manages obesity, engaging a dietitian, that's where that becomes important. So as long as we are ensuring a caloric deficit and we are doing it consistently, any diet works. Adherence is really key. Then the important question that comes up is physical activity. Okay, you know, how much do we need? How effective is that? So I tell my patients right off the bat, and most of them smile when I tell them that, you know, if we approach this with the notion that we can lose weight by just exercising without making changes to our caloric intake, we'll have to exercise 48 hours in a day. So they all, I always get a smile from them on this one. So the point I'm trying to make that that really is, physical activity really does not lead to any significant weight loss, especially when we're first starting this journey. Now that, that qualifier is very important, especially when we're first starting this journey. So this journey has to be started by caloric restriction. But then again, as that initial weight loss has happened, Happened, that's when the role of exercise comes in. So to maintain that lost weight and to continue to lose weight, physical activity is very important, but that's not necessarily going to start the process. Now, that being said, exercise has many, many other benefits, right? Irrespective of weight loss, it's going to cause a lowering of blood pressure. It's going to cause a lowering of glucose, a lowering of lipids, and lowering overall cardiovascular risk. So it should absolutely be done. But then to approach it with the notion that if I just exercise this, this weight off, I can get where I need to be. It doesn't work like that. So the initial phase, I recommend 150 minutes or greater of aerobic activity. And once that once we're in the weight maintenance phase, we want to maintain the lost weights, it's 200 minutes or greater. 
And why is that? That's slightly, you know, very sophisticated and nuanced discussion with the patient that I try to have right off the bat when I'm seeing somebody the first time for a weight management consultation. I prepare my patients for weight regain, which is inevitable for most. So they lose the weight. The natural tendency is to gain it back. Why is that? That's what we call something like the biggest cause is metabolic adaptation, meaning as you are losing the weight, your body is turning against you, if you will, and your basal needs are falling as you are losing the weight. So it's, a, it's an uphill task. And then the second thing is behavioral fatigue. You've been making all these healthy choices, going to the gym every day. We're human beings. We get tired of that after some time. So that, that's the secondary cause. But then because of this weight gain does, weight regain is a very, very common problem. So again, preparing my patients for it, anticipating it. And that's a time when I may consider using an appetite suppressant for a patient when it becomes more of an uphill task. And that's also the time to really increase your physical activity even more. So 200 minutes or more per week. So a lot of hard work, but it does yeah. pay off. Yeah, well, success with weight loss and even more important, maintaining that weight loss is, mm -hmm. is uncommon. I mean, it, it, we just don't succeed very often, but mm -hmm. the successes I have seen have been in patients who have done both diet and exercise. Exercise alone, as you mentioned, I mean, it's depressing to see how few calories you burn mm -hmm. with a fair amount of exercise. So I, I agree, it really needs to be both diet and exercise. Well, Ekta, you've given us uh, quite a bit to think about here. Can you summarize our discussion and maybe give two or three key points on obesity in women? Yeah, Dr. Chatka, I'd love to. So my main counseling points to my patients, particularly if I'm seeing them in their younger years, is that the goal really has to be to enter that menopause transition, which as I have shared is a vulnerable phase. It's a window of vulnerability with a normal body weight as much as possible, because it ends up being a more of an uphill task after that. So we, we enter menopause at a normal weight. And then again, recognizing that this is a lifestyle choice. This is the lifestyle behavior. It's a marathon. And again, not getting bogged down or stressed about the fact that this needs to happen in a certain time frame. As long as we are consistently making the right choices every single day, we're likely to see results. And again, you know, I always tell my patients that it's not about not having that candy bar at all. It's about knowing when to stop and stopping with one piece rather than just going for the whole slab. That's what it is. So it's again, making those long lasting behavioral changes. And that's kind of really is key when it comes to preventing weight, loss, uh, weight gain and then managing obesity. Well, we've been discussing obesity in women with women's health expert, Dr. Ekta Kapoor from the Mayo Clinic. Ekta, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today for this really very important topic. This was fun for me, Dr. Chatka. Thank you for having me with you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.